The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is immeasurable in its application. And I believe that God has a message in every chapter of the book for today and forever. And as we come to the 13th chapter, you who have been regularly attending notice that we have been in a series of messages through the book of Revelation. And we've come to Revelation 13. And Revelation 13 is one of the pivotal chapters of the Bible, presenting the beast out of the sea and the beast from the land. Speaking of the last days, the days of the tribulation. And we're going to come to that in a moment. But this tonight is a second in a series from this book, this chapter 13. And I'm not at all sure we will finish chapter 13 tonight, but we'll go as far as the Lord will lead us. Let's have a word of prayer together as we begin this study. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will guide in the study of God's Word tonight. Thank you that we do not have to be experts, specialists, but simply students led by the Holy Spirit as we open the Scriptures and let God speak to us. Oh, our Father, tonight, may the Holy Spirit of God grab hold of our hearts, get our attention, focus it all on Jesus. And may we see all the antithesis and the opposition that Jesus has and how it will get darker and darker and darker until that great day of the Lord. If there's one person here tonight who is not saved, may he come to Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as though it were wounded and Now, speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. 
He doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast that had the wound by a sword and did live. And he hath power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and enslaved, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might go or buy or sell except he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that understandeth, that hath understanding, count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Now you recognize where we are in the study of the Revelation. We're in the second division of Revelation, really the third large division, the time of prophecy which speaks of the things that are yet to come, beginning in chapter 4 and continuing through chapter 22. But in that section, chapter 4 through 22, we are in the second division of Revelation because chapters 4 through 11 give a quick panoramic view of the things that will happen leading up to the time when in a Revelation 11:15 we read, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That all comes to a great grand climax in chapter 11. And then beginning in chapter 12, we have a rather detailed account of the things that will happen during this period of the tribulation, after the believers are taken out, and the world grows dark and dark and dark. And then, at the close of the climax of that tribulation period, Jesus comes with 10,000 of his saints to put an end once and for all to all the enmity and the midnight terror reign, and the Lord God establishes his kingdom. And the millennial reign begins. Now that's the second part of the tribulation section in the Revelation, chapter 12 through 19. Now a few Sunday nights ago we talked about chapter 12, the five personages of the end, and we came last Sunday night to chapter 13 as we discussed the tribulation period and the Antichrist. Now the word Antichrist it doesn't occur in this chapter. He is, he does occur, that word does occur in many instances in the Scripture. And when you think of Christ, you think of the compassionate, loving Savior who was able to get mad, righteously indignant, and drive out the forces of evil from the temple with, with whips. You think of the Scripture that tells that Jesus will come in the power and great glory and will receive unto himself those who are his own. You think of the Christ who died on a cross for our sins. He who never did sin became the accursed thing, and all my sins and all your sins accumulatively were placed upon Jesus. And he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus, God's meek lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But when you add that little prefix anti 
to his name. You come upon a teaching that is throughout the scripture the subject of mystery and yet the subject of great interest and concern for all believers. Because what we have is the word anti-Christ, meaning the one who stands in the stead of Christ, who opposes the Christ, and who pretends to be everything the Christ is, but is not the Christ. This is the antichrist. The scripture tells us that already there is the spirit of antichrist in the world. Paul said to, the Tim to Timothy in his letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talked about uh, the times of the end when there would be a form of godliness having no power. He talked about uh, all the things that we were, were to expect in the, in the latter day. John tells us that already the spirit of Antichrist has come. The spirit of Antichrist is anything that sets itself against the true teachings of God through Christ Jesus. The Antichrist is the, the embodiment of the mystery of iniquity that has down through the ages set itself against God and against his anointed and against his truth and against his church and against his kingdom. But all the Bible tells us that all of that is embodied in one personage that will one day emerge at the end of the age in what the Bible calls the Antichrist. And when we come to chapter 13 of Revelation, we see two beasts, one rising out of the sea in verse 1 and one rising out of the earth in verse 11. This is very interesting. The one that arises out of the sea arises from the mass sea of confusion of political powers that are abreast in our land. And this beast comes as a political figure who will rule our world. The beast that rises out of the earth in verse 11 is an ecclesiastical figure. He is answerable to no one except the first beast. And so we have in chapter 13 the political beast and the ecclesiastical beast. The political beast, the Antichrist, the political figure that will arise to rule in this earth. I believe he answers to chapter 6, the first of the horsemen that ride across the stage of history during the tribulation on a white horse and he has a bloodless coup, and an entire world kneels before him and honors him and makes him their king or their president or their leader. Now, a number of years ago, many years ago, 25 years ago, 35 years ago, this was a new concept. I recall as a, a teenager when President Roosevelt was uh, uh, fading out of the scene and he had died and Mr. Truman took over, and Henry Wallace, was one of the great key uh, political figures. I uh, understand that Henry Wallace had some communist leanings. Everybody didn't understand it at that time. But Henry Wallace spoke of one world, one world government. He was followed by Adlai Stevenson, who spoke of one world, one world government. 
and our United Nations that began in 1945 in San Francisco has written into its very whiff and poof the idea of one world government. Now most Americans can hardly conceive of this because we are nationalistic. But those that are in high echelons of authority are looking forward to a day when there will be one world government. The International Bank speaks of a time when there will be just one bank, the World Bank. Already there's a World Bank. Our world is being conditioned for a one world situation. Ecclesiastically, the same thing is taking place. There is a movement toward ecumenism. There is a movement toward one church. A number of years ago, uh, I was in a meeting, in a revival meeting in a city, and they had a, a talk show on a radio. And they had at that talk show, they asked me to come, and the pastor of the church came. And they had at that talk show a, a Roman Catholic priest and a, a Baptist pastor and, an, and a preacher, an evangelist. And they had two or three others. A Methodist was there and a Lutheran was there. And they were interviewing everybody. And they got on the idea of the ecumenical movement. And all the people were just, all these ministers were just excited about it, looking forward to the time when they would drop all these denominational names and barriers and so on, and everybody would be one, one happy family. And it all sounded beautiful, good, wonderful, wonderful. I asked the question, if we're going to all agree, then should we not all agree on the, mace, the, the major issue, the key thing to it all? How do you have right standing with God? Now the Roman priest said, let's not talk about that because we'd never agree on that. So after we had the talk show and we went over, we had coffee together, and I said to this minister, this priest, I said, sir, and I'm not being critical, please understand that, I'm just giving this for information. I said to him, sir, uh, a while ago you said we should not talk about the thing that uh, divides us, the thing that unites us. Now, is there a heaven? Oh, yes, there's a heaven. I said, do you believe there's a hell? Well, he said, there's a purgatory, and I guess there's a hell. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Yes, sir, of course I believe that. You know, the Catholic Church teaches that. I said, well, how do you have right standing with God? Oh, he said, well, we better not discuss that because we would never agree on that. I said, well, what does the Bible teach about how to have right standing with God, how to be saved? Well, he told me his plan of salvation. You know the plan of salvation that the Roman church uses and so on. And we discussed that a little while, and I talked about how to be born again. And Then, to my amazement, he said, well, let's just to change the subject. He said, let's talk about uh, the, the world church. Now, he said, we're going to get together, the Buddhists and the Confucianists and the Zoroastrists and all the religions of the world. All of it will be in one group. I said, and, and he said, this is going to be the world brotherhood of men and the fatherhood of God. I said, do you mean you're going to have in this ecumenical movement the Buddhists and the Confucianists and the uh, Mohammedans and everybody else? Oh, yes, he said, this is part of the movement. This is it. Now, beloved, that is in the making. That is the world concept of the ecumenical movement, the ultimate. Now, they don't all say that because obviously 
you know, there, there are people that hold, uh, like the Methodists hold to sprinkling and the Lutherans hold to their position and the Catholics hold to their position and so on. They're not going to easily lay this down. As a matter of fact, the Anglicans and the Catholics have had a hard time deciding whether they can ever come together and take the communion together. And recently, the arch, the uh, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope of Rome met together and they had communion together. First time in a thousand years. One more step toward the ecclesiastical merging. This book says that's what's going to occur in the end of the age. There's going to be an ecclesiastical... Now, and, when you, and listen... The best way to interpret Scripture is to interpret it literally unless the literal interpretation is ludicrous. And so when we come to these two beasts in Revelation 13, and they speak great swelling words against God, and they are leaders of men, we're to understand that that's not some bear or some horse that's come along or some strange-looking elephant that comes along. These beasts are men that talk like beasts, that act like beasts in their ferociousness, but they are literally men. And so the first beast is the political beast. He arises. And the second beast is the ecclesiastical beast. And if you notice, the ecclesiastical beast causes everybody in the earth to worship the political beast. Notice in verse 11, chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. He spoke like a dragon. Do you notice? Like a lamb, like a dragon like a lamb, like a dragon. Can you imagine those two figures of speech being used in the same sentence? That is, he talks like somebody who is meek and like the lamb of God. He's very religious, but in reality, he's a beast. And notice, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them that dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast that had, wound, that had the wound by a sword and did live. And he has power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and enslaved, to receive the mark in their right hand and their forehead. Who does this? The ecclesiastical beast. The prophet. It's a religious orientation that says you must receive this mark. Now tonight, we do not have time to go into a full discussion of this, but I want to talk for the next few moments, just the limited time we have, about the question, when will these beasts appear? When are they going to appear? Are they already alive? Is it possible that the Antichrist is already alive? Now some of you read the horoscope. You ought to put a big X over it in your paper and just ignore it, not even read it. Some of you read it. 
Some of you get these books by Gene Dixon, or you go to the, uh, go in the paper st- stores and you see all these uh, new, new exciting uh, uh, things that uh, these psychics are, are going to, uh, pr- you know, they're, they're predicting will happen in 1981 or 1982. And so you grab that and you say, well, I want to know what's going to happen in the future, so I read all that. Now, some of you have read after Gene Dixon. Do, do you know that Gene Dixon said that there was a little boy baby born in February of 1962. And that baby was destined to become a world phenomenal leader. And in the early 1980s, she said, the world will recognize who that person is. Now in her early uh, 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 excursions in the psychic field, uh, she said uh, this was the savior of the world. This was the Christ. And this is the second coming of Jesus. And then later she put out another edition and said, well, I've read my Bible a little bit more and I I just believe that that couldn't be the Christ, that must be the Antichrist. And so Miss Jean Dixon has gone on record as predicting that the Antichrist has already been born, that he's living in the Near East somewhere, and uh, that in the early 1980s he will be revealed for what he is. Now, I do not know anything about whether Jean Dixon uh, is true or not, but I want to tell you this. She, if she's saying anything that's true, she gets it not from God. A prophet who predicts things like that must be 100% correct or they're not a true prophet of God. And so, if Jean Dixon has access to that knowledge, she didn't get it from God. You can decide where she got it. Now, there are some things that the devil knows. A lot of things the devil knows. And it could be Uh, that what she said has some accuracy. I want to tell you this. We do not have to get our information from the psychics and from uh, the Dixons and so on. We can get it right from the Word of God. The Scripture specifically tells us when the Antichrist will appear, when this man of sin will appear. Turn your Bible to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And all the time we'll have tonight is to discuss uh, this section, this, this one theme. When is this Antichrist going to appear? Is he already here? Now the answer to the first question, is he already here? I do not know. He could be alive today. Or he may not be alive. There are some who believe that the Antichrist will be the reincarnation of Judas Iscariot. No, a person of no less great uh, a, a spiritual respect than Kenneth Wiest, who for years and years taught at Moody Bible Institute, taught that. He believed that the Antichrist would be in the impersonation, the reincarnation of Judas Iscariot. I'm not teaching that tonight. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is what somebody believed. If that's true, he's saying that Judas Iscariot will have a miraculous birth in this world that will imitate the miraculous birth of Jesus. I don't know. I'm just saying this is what Kenneth Weiss said. The Bible does not say that. But the Bible does say all of the spirit of Antichrist is going to focus in to one person, and he's called the man of sin. And the Bible tells us when he will be revealed. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's look at this for a moment. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that, be, uh, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letters from us that the day of the Lord is present. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there first come the falling away and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Number one, in, before the man of sin is revealed there will be a great falling away. Now I mentioned in this message the other night that this term falling away could mean one of two things in the original Greek. It could mean the catching away of the believers. It could mean the great apostasy, the falling away of the superficial believers. Whichever it means, the Scripture specifically says that the man of sin will not be revealed until that occurs. Now, if it means the falling away, that is, the apostasy of the superficial believers, that corresponds with Revelation chapter 3 concerning the church of Laodicea that is neither, luke, nor, neither hot nor cold, but they're lukewarm. And Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And we're living in a day when the professing church all too often is neither hot nor cold. Lukewarm. Lukewarm having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. All confused over standards, all confused over godly living, all confused over the various issues of the Bible, confused over the Scriptures, the very veracity of Scripture. Confusion reigns. And Jesus said, there will come a day when the love of many will wax cold. And Paul said, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. I believe the Scripture teaches that there's coming a day when in the visible church there's going to be a cleavage. Those who love Jesus Christ will get warmer and warmer and warmer and want to get souls saved and, and want to have world revival. And those that are at ease in Zion will get colder and colder and colder and won't understand the other group. And Jesus speaks of the love of many waxing cold. We're living in a day just like that now. Secondly, look in verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? In other words, He's saying here, the man of sin cannot be revealed until, and if I read that scripture correctly, he can sit in the temple of God and oppose God. Now, what's the temple of God? That's not this church. And listen, beloved, your body is much more sacred than this church house we're in. I've heard people say, well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't smoke in church. This church is not nearly as sacred as your body. Amen. I've heard people say, well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't do such and such a thing as the church, in the church. I wouldn't have a dance in the church. Your body is far, far more sacred to God than this building ever was. This church is not the temple. This body, this building here is not the temple. The temple that the Scripture speaks of is the temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish temple. 
that the Bible says is going to be reconstructed, rebuilt. That's a fascinating thing. I want you to listen to a, a, a news article I want to give you. In Seattle, Washington newspapers, uh, the following headlines, Israel's New Temple Scroll, a mystery. The article went on to tell the story concerning the scrolls that were discovered by the herdsmen in the vicinity of Qumran, north of the Dead Sea. These scrolls were hidden in the caves of Qumran by members of the Essene sect of Jews who had established a monastery near the shores of the Dead Sea. It seemed that one man, one man was used as a go-between between, with the, uh, the herdsmen and the American and European Bible scholars. For 20 years, deals were made with great sums of money were paid to acquire the many scrolls found. As high as $196,000 was paid for one scroll. The one scroll in question called in this newspaper article Israel's New Temple Scroll is particularly attractive to Israel because it has to deal with the plans for the building of the temple. You think of that. In 1967, when the Israeli soldiers invaded Bethlehem and occupied the city, they arrested this broker and took him into custody. Five days later, the Israeli authorities were able to acquire this temple scroll, but no one will discuss just how it was done. If these are the plans for the new temple, that remains to be seen. How wonderful it is to see these things happening during our lifetime. You think of that. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. In about the year 30 A.D., in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus said, There will not be one stone left on another stone, speaking of the destruction of the temple. In 70 A.D., 40 years later, Titus from Rome marched into Jerusalem, surrounded the city because the Jews put up resistance and one battalion of Jews, about 900 of them, left and went down through the aqueducts and the underground tunnels out of Jerusalem that Hezekiah had built years and years before, and they went under the city walls and so on, and they got down to Masada. And they, led a, led, they stood in the last-ditch stand on that mountain rock fortress of Masada. Because the Jews did that, Titus said, we're going to literally destroy Jerusalem. And they tore down the walls, and they tore down the palace, and they tore down everything in Jerusalem, and they tore down the temple. And there was no temple in Jerusalem ever after, to this very day. In about the year 500 A.D., Muhammad led in the construction of what they call the Mosque of Omar. And that Mosque of Omar is established over what they believe to be the very place where the Jewish temple stood. There are archaeologists today who are digging under the city of Jerusalem, along the walls of the old Wailing Wall, down under the city, down in the old foundations. And there are some archaeologists who are saying, possibly, possibly, where that mosque of Omar is, is not really where the Jewish temple was, but the Jewish temple was little bit to the south of that. Do you, realize the Do you realize what that could mean if that's true? The Jews who are in charge of Jerusalem now for the first time in 2,000 years could reconstruct their temple and leave the mosque of Omar there and the temple would be built. There are other Orthodox Jews who say the only way the temple can be built is for the mosque of Omar to be destroyed. We wait to see how all of that will unfold. But the man of sin 
will not be revealed for what he is until the temple is reconstructed and he can go into the temple and stand as God. Jesus called this in Matthew 24 the abomination that worketh desolate. And he, he likened it unto that time in Jewish history during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes who marched into the city of Jerusalem and was so against and had such antipathy toward the Jews that he went into the temple and built a statue of Jupiter on the Jewish altar. And then he offered a sow on the Jewish altar. And the Maccabeans rebelled against the Romans, against the Greeks, and against the Syrians, and against Antiochus Epiphanes. And they threw out Antiochus Epiphanes and all those people. And for a little while, the Maccabeans had sort of an independent period in which they reigned. But they always called that the abomination that worketh desolate. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination which worketh desolate take place, then you better run. He's not talking about going back in history to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's talking about going forward in history to the time of the reign of the man of sin, the Antichrist. Now there's a third truth. Look in verse 6. And know ye, now ye know what restraineth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now hindereth will continue to hinder until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose working coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they shall believe the lie. Now, what's this say? Before the man of sin is revealed, the one that restrains will be taken out. The one that hinders will be taken out. Who is the hinderer? Who is the, who is the one that keeps this world from getting so dark that we can't endure it? Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. How can we be the salt of the earth? How can we be the light of the world? Is it within us? Or is it within somebody else to be that? It is within the Holy Spirit. He is the salt. He is the light. He is the restrainer. And beloved, he lives in the heart of every believer. If you're saved tonight, the Holy Spirit is inside your heart. He lives in you. He abides in you. He gives authority to your life. He gives you direction. I was trying to talk about that this morning when I mentioned that if you do not have something on the inside that gives you wisdom and guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then you don't have anything. If all you know about the Christian faith is something you get from others from the outside, then, beloved, please check up. If you can hear a message like this tonight and the Holy Spirit doesn't speak inside your heart and give you truths that are beyond the words of this preacher, then please check up on your own spiritual life because the Holy Spirit inside of you is the, the one that, that gives illumination, that gives light and enables you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he is the one that holds back the tide of sin. You remember the little boy that put his finger in the dike to keep the water from coming and rushing into the city. 
The Holy Spirit has his finger in the dike of sin. Sin, which is like a huge flood pouring over a dam. And there's a crack in that dam, but the Holy Spirit is there with his hand against it. But one of these days, when the Holy Spirit says that's enough, and the trump of God shall sound, and the Lord Jesus appears in the air, and we are caught up together to be with him, the Holy Spirit that is in us will be removed, and that dike, the water, the water of sin, and that dike will be rushing down into this earth, and the earth will be under a terrible convulsion of judgment such as the world has never seen. And we'll get into that when we get into chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of Revelation. When we see the awful, bold judgments poured out upon this earth. But that's not going to happen until the Holy Spirit is removed. And the Holy Spirit is removed when you and I are removed. That's the, world, that's the reason this world is a little bit palatable. That's the reason it isn't as dark as it could be. That's the reason that even in communist lands where they say there is no God, they have some type of principle. Not much, but some type of principle. That's the reason the church did not die in China or in Russia or in Romania or Albania or Yugoslavia, or Czechoslovakia. The Lord's church hadn't died there. Amen. They may have to meet underground, but they're still meeting. Why? Not because people are powerful, but because the Holy Spirit is in them. And Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. You cannot kill the church. Amen. Jesus one day will take his believers out. And when that happens, and all the flood tides of sin will pour upon this earth. Now I want you to notice something else in this third truth. In verse 11, and for this cause God shall send, we're in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be judged who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know what that's saying? I wish you'd mark that in your Bible. You know what that's saying? I believe, and you may not see it like this, I believe that teaches that a person who has heard the gospel, who's been exposed to the glorious gospel, heard about Jesus, knows about his death, his resurrection, knows that we're sinners and that Christ died for sinners, and you've rejected that truth. You've said no. No, no, not tonight. I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. But at last, when the Lord comes and takes unto himself those who are his own, you who have heard this message, you who have heard the glorious gospel, you who have heard about the atoning work of Christ, and you've said, no, I want my own way a little longer. I want to sow my own wild oats a little longer. I don't want to come to Christ yet. When Jesus comes and takes those who are his own unto himself, there'll be something happen to your mind. It'll click. And you'll never be able to believe the truth again. You'll believe a lie. And you'll be lost forever. Never can you be saved. 
somebody said, will anybody be saved during the tribulation? Yes. There will be Jewish evangelists go out to preach the word of God. The church will be gone. The gospel of Christ will not come to the world through the church as we know it now. It will not be the age of grace. It will be the awful time of tribulation. But the Jewish evangelists will be preaching the word and millions the world over that we have neglected. We didn't tell them. God's going to tell them through the Jewish evangelists, I think. And millions of them will be saved. Multitudes with no number. But not you who have rejected Jesus. You'll have ears, but you'll hear not. You'll have eyes, but you'll see not. Never again will you have an opportunity to be saved. That's when the Holy Spirit is taken out. And beloved, my dear friend, you in this room tonight, when that day comes and the Antichrist begins to be revealed for what he is and the false prophet comes along the ecclesiastical beast he will have enough of the professing church to form churches all around the world and he will cause you who have rejected Christ to receive the mark of the beast we'll get into the mark of the beast at the next time his number is 666. But beloved, Jesus doesn't want you to have that mark. He wants you to have his mark. The seal of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to have his mark in your life. And that mark is available tonight if you'll open your heart to Christ and say, come in, Lord Jesus. I need you. I know I'm a sinner. I want to give my heart to Christ. And if you're already saved, God wants you to start serving Him and living for Him and honoring Him and obeying Him and being excited about the things of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, thank You for these tremendous truths. And Father, I ask You tonight that the Holy Spirit will give credence to the things that are truth. And may that truth be applied to every heart. Oh God, may Christians, realizing the times in which we live, yield our all to Thee, to honor Thee. And I pray that tonight some who have never been saved will step out for Christ. Some who need a church home to serve you, but they'll come. May the name of Jesus be honored, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand, please. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. That's the way everybody has to come now, just as you are. Don't think you're going to get better first and then come. I want to ask you to come just like you are. Come with your sins. Come with your hurts. Come with your questions. Come with your faith. Come with your lack of faith. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you just come, Christ receiveth sinful men. I urge you to come tonight. Some of you here, have already been saved, but you're not taking an open stand for God right now. 
If you don't have a church through which you're serving and working, I urge you to come. Take an open stand. Take the stigma of Christ upon you and begin to serve him and worship him and honor him in this city where you live. Others of you have been saved, but your life is out of joint with God's will. God has spoken to you about a matter, and you've said, no, Lord, not now, some other time, not now. Oh, I, I tell you, that's a dangerous thing. God doesn't give you tomorrow. He gives you today. And he doesn't count actions. He counts the will. He looks into our heart to see what we're willing to do. And that will is going to produce the actions if we have time. But God is going to judge you on the basis of what you're willing to do, not what you've got time to do. The time may be short. You may not be able to do all the things that the men of the past have done. But if you have a willing heart and you're willing to say, Lord, here I am, use me to the best of my ability, my strength, I give to you. And I want you to use me. He'll use you. God's calling some of you to preach. God's calling some of you to take the stigma of the cross upon you and be close to Jesus and serve him and honor him. God's calling some of you to yield your life as a mission volunteer to say, I'll go where God wants me to go and bury my life if no, nobody else in the world ever knows about it. God will know, and that'll be enough. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. God is calling some of you to teach in Christian schools. God is calling some of you to be Sunday school teachers, bus pastors, Christian education directors, Sunday school workers, and so on. Do what God tells you to do. But beloved, if God has his hand on you, yield to him. Don't say no when God says go. Oh, I beseech you tonight. I have the impression that someone is in this room this evening that God is calling into his service. Won't you yield to him? Let him have his way. While we begin to sing, who will come for Christ? Trusting him as your Savior or getting on fire to serve God. While we begin, who will come first?